Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Artistic Finance. My name is Ethan Steimel, and I'm your host for this podcast, and I'm also a theatrical designer and producer. Since this is the first episode, let me explain why I'm doing this and what I hope to achieve in future episodes. To begin, money is a taboo topic all across the world. But when we don't talk about something, there can be a lot of shame that gets associated with it. And if there is shame, people shut down and don't want to talk about it. If you add in vocations that don't pay well, such as the fine arts, people start to ignore money. When they ignore money, that can perpetuate them to not having any or not knowing how to manage it. Good art doesn't require money, but the livelihood of artists depends on it, especially in a capitalistic society where only commercial art is rewarded financially. How do we break down the wall between art and money? I don't know, but I'm going to ask questions and start conversations. Thank you for joining me. Together, let's figure out how to move artists from barely surviving to thriving. Since my background is in theatrical lighting design, we're going to start by interviewing lighting designer Peter Kazarowski. Peter has designed theater all over the world, including but not limited to Broadway, Off-Broadway, the West End, the Metropolitan Opera, the Santa Fe Opera, Asia, and Europe. For the film Birdman, Peter designed the onstage scenes. His work has won him Drama Desk, Outer Critic, and Ovation Awards. His most recent accolade is winning the LA Drama Critics Award for his design of Key Largo at the Geffen Playhouse. On Broadway, he has designed 60 shows, including Grey Gardens and Beautiful, the Carol King musical. He has received five nominations for the Tony Award and won the Tony for The Producers. Now, before we start, I want to give a big thank you to Peter for coming on. This was my first ever interview, and since we recorded, I've learned a bit more about how to podcast, and I got help restructuring the questions. So thank you, Peter, for your kindness and patience. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome, Peter Kazarowski. You are the very first guest on this podcast ever. What is like a 30-second recap of your career and how you got to where you are right now? Wow, 30 seconds is fast. So I graduated from college uh, May 1978, moved to New York City August 1978, uh, and I've been here ever since. I started in the dance world, I kind of segued to the opera world, then I segued to the regional theater world and then kind of wormed my way into the New York scene. Because I always think of you as a Broadway designer, but you've clearly done a lot, a lot more. <laughs> I didn't get to New Broadway. I think Broadway was 1991 and um, I moved to New York in 1978. So that was 13 years later. I did a lot of assisting. I did a lot of, uh, you know, my own work in the regions. And, um, and then I started by doing small shows, you know, in small places off Broadway. Did you assist on Broadway or did you assist elsewhere and then... Go to it. I mostly assisted on Broadway, uh, which was what enabled me to really make a living. Because, you know, I would do my little dance gigs or my opera gigs or whatever, and they were basically no money or very little money. But um, I would assist on Broadway. And um, that, to me at the time, it just seemed like a remarkable amount of money for, you know, like uh, it's ridiculous what it was. I mean, I think my first Broadway contract, my first Broadway assisting gig was. Amadeus, the original transfer from the National with McAllen, I think it was 1980 maybe or 81. And I think my salary was $330 a week. Amazing. I assisted quite a bit on Broadway, actually. I did a lot of those uh, McCann Nugent projects in the 80s. You know, they brought a lot of things over from the National and from the West End. They were sort of the original Broadway transfer people. And uh, they liked me. And I got to work with a lot of people who worked with them because they recommended me as the assistant. I, uh, I worked for Tom Skelton for, uh, I don't know, five years, six years, something like that. I did all the Broadway shows that he did in that span. You know, Beverly Emmons, Neil Jampolis, lots of people. I did a lot of assisting. I was a good assistant and I loved it. I loved doing it. Um, I wanted to keep doing it actually, but I decided at some point that I needed to um, you know, 
make a break, do my own thing. And uh, I did, but I miss those yeah. days. I miss those days. And was it, did you sort of, when you got to Broadway designing, did you just make like a hard cut from assisting into designing? I did the hard cut before I got my first Broadway show. That's for sure. Uh, I think I assisted until 87, something like that. My first Broadway was 91. There was definitely a period of, um, you know, it was nervous making. There was a period of not a lot of work, very little income. But I was married at the time. My wife worked. She made a good salary. Uh, we were never, like, worried about being on the street or anything like that. But I was thinking, you know, what is the deal here? The phone is not ringing. Nobody's hiring me. That went on for, like, a, I would say a two-year period. I'd have my regular gigs in St. Louis. I would go to the opera season there. For the most part, for the rest of the year, they were wide open. I have plenty of uh, periods in my life where I have wide open spaces with no work or, you know, the work will eventually fill up. But when you don't know it's going to fill up, it's just like, uh-oh, what's going on? Okay. Well, that 30-second recap took a little bit longer. But um, so now I'm, I'm going to describe your demographics uh, just so people know, you know, especially if they're just listening. Um, so I would describe you as a, a white male who is a, a late boomer generation. Um, you're from Buffalo, New York. That's correct. And you had said you might have touched on your education already, but what is your education? Just a four-year undergraduate degree at a state university. When you packed your bags to move to New York, like what did your finances look like that? Did you have a trust fund or was it like, I'm going to go take the first job I can find because I just have to make money to get an apartment? Okay. I had no money. I mean, I had bupkis. Uh, my family does not come from money. You know, I went to a state school on a scholarship. Uh, I went there cause it was free. So I had nothing, but in a sense, I also had a lot in the, in the sense that I did not have any debt. Didn't any, owe anybody any money when I got out of college. And, um, and I had that job. I had a job when I moved to New York, I moved to New York, as I said, in August of 1978, because I knew I had a job at a place called dance theater workshop on West 19th street, which is still here and going strong, a leading modern dance theater in this country forever. And, uh, they hired me out of college to be their sort of resident, Lighting guy. Now, that's a bit of a longer story because I would go there during my college years to visit my former professor who moved out of school to go to New York to start a career. And he ended up working at Dance Theater Workshop. So in my final two years of college, I came down to New York many times to work with him at Dance Theater Workshop. And I did everything. I changed the gels. I ran the light board. I focused the lights. I took the tickets. I mopped the bathroom floors. All of that. And uh, I did it like a half a dozen times, seven or eight times. They got used to me. They're like, this this kid is crazy. But, you know, she seems like somebody who might, you know, be the right person to take over the job that my teacher left two years later. So I graduated in May, and I knew I had a gig starting September 1st at Dance Theater Workshop. So I moved to New York in August to get settled. I thank my lucky stars, and I recognize my good fortune regularly about how that all began. Because to me, it sounds like a uh, summer stock. Cause I have a love hate relationship with summer stocks, but it's, it almost sounds like you, you did like a bunch of summer stop experience, but it was in New York city. That's right. And then also like, so you were living in Buffalo. I, I don't know geography. Is that like a three hour drive to the city? From where I went to school, which is a little bit closer to the city. It's probably a six hour drive. So I would hitchhike. I went down in the car with somebody who lived on Long Island on Easter break. Uh, I think I took the train a couple times, slept on people's floors. I don't even remember where I stayed, but, uh, you know, it was two or three days at a time. And then I'd go back to school. The next thing, you know, I couldn't believe it that they actually called and offered me this job. I mean, it's just, it was a miracle. It was $249 a week. That's what they paid me. Wow. That's absolutely very first rent, a single, you know, one room apartment on uh, West, uh, excuse me, East 10th and 2nd Avenue, right next to the church was $279 a month. And I was a little freaked out about going that high. Wow. That's amazing. When uh, Nicole and I moved to New York in 2013, 
and our rent for a one bedroom fourth floor walk up was 1375 and we thought we were getting a really like good deal like this is amazing <laughs> wow cool and then the other thing is because i know you but i only know you from where you are right now and the last like 5 years so all the, this is all sort of amazing to me because in a way you, i sort of feel like you're describing sort of what i feel like i've gone through a little bit that sort of gives us just an idea of who you are. So now I want to touch on you uh, as an artist, um, because lighting design is very technical or can be, but it is also um, very artistic. And just because you're good with computers or something certainly does not mean that you can be a lighting designer. That, that holds true in spades for me, because it's the computer part that I can't do at all. It's the sort of more reactive, yeah. emotional, whatever content that I'm a little bit more comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these are sort of touching on your artistic sensibility. Um, but what is your favorite show? I, I just don't – I don't think of it that way. You know, I don't think of my favorite book, my favorite – first of all, you might consider – like, first of all, do you mean the, the, the piece on the page or – the piece as produced. Oh, I, w I was thinking as an audience member. I still don't know if I could quantify that. Although still in my head, I must say, is American Utopia. Not because it's recently in my head, but because it, it yeah. is one of the best things I've seen, I think, as a, in a live performance. It's not quite a Broadway show, really, but um, it's an amazing evening, and it's beautifully staged and lit and smart and, you know, terrific content and rousing and politically correct and just a really kind of perfect evening. I don't know. You know I mean, I'd have to go back to like, I couldn't say they were my favorite. No, I don't, I don't have a favorite. Let's leave it. At I that. understand. I mean, like, because I mean, for me, I mean, I don't have to answer these questions that I'm asking you, <laughs> but people say like, Oh, what's your favorite movie or show or whatever. And I, I, I feel the same way. It's like, they're all so different. And, and how do you pick between, uh, you know, a documentary or someone's life story versus a completely fictional piece. And so it's like, I like aspects of a lot of things. Don't make me pick one. Okay. So then maybe these other questions don't make sense, but do you, do you pull artistic inspiration? Like when you're going to light a show or thinking about a show, do you pull it from anywhere? I'm not sure I would, would describe it as drawing inspiration from so much as maybe like refilling my soul and that I get definitely from music and from nature. Um, and I, you know, not so much works of art or books of art, although you did mention the dramatic imagination and I do keep a copy of that close by my bedside because <laughs> every once in a while I do have yeah. to read a kind of hokey truism about the way theater is, should be, was maybe at one time. And actually, he writes a lot about how I light, which is, you know, like as a living thing, as a, you know, as part of the event, as sort of intrinsic to how actors are acting and, and directors are staging and stuff like that. Anyway, so I, I do, I, I do fall into that book every once in a while. But for me, yeah, walking, nature, composition, light, nature, and then music. I mean, that's the gig. Lighting is pretty much matching light to mood to to atmosphere and uh so i think inadvertently or maybe um that's not quite the right word but kind of i i i take that in in a way that i feel kind of helps me then maybe represent it somehow on stage listening to you know for you know particularly when i'm a little when i really need to be sort of inspired when i feel like i need to like get some energy up to get something done. It's Beethoven. <laughs> and so, and maybe this overlaps and this is sort of like my final, like asking about your artist sensibility, but, and, and I always joke that like lighting designers and or theater people don't have time for any hobbies, but do you have any hobbies? Oh yes, definitely. Particularly these days. Yeah. Well, I guess we should just mention that for people listening years from now, that this is April 24th, 2020 and we're amidst the COVID-19 coronavirus shutdown lockdown. So that, that will inform perhaps a lot of the stuff we talk about. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm a very good cook, always have been, 
uh, love to do it. Love to, um, you know, kind of go to the market and buy stuff and then compose meals. I love it. I like being in my kitchen. And um, while I've baked in my life, I've never been really a serious baker. But, of course, I've recently done the bread baking thing. So uh, I made a starter and I've made some fairly kick-ass uh, loaves of bread in the last couple of weeks. You said you said you made bagels, which yes, we made that. That was a gift for um, for Nina's birthday. Uh, Nina Goldman, my girlfriend, uh, from my sister. It was kind of a cute little package of thing. It wasn't really very serious baking, but it was fun. You know, I, I like to read. I like to exercise. I bought a piano recently to try to get back to that because I played the piano when I was a kid. I have a guitar, and I just bought a new set of strings for it because my brother makes guitars. My brother's a woodworker. Anyway, that's a diversion. But I'm going to restring my guitar and uh, see where that takes me. I speak Italian, so I, or I try to speak Italian, so I try to keep that sort of to a place where I don't lose it. And travel, I mean, uh, travel, 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 which is really what I want to be doing right now, but of course we can't. can't. It's also good that a lot of those, other than travel... At least there are things you can do in your apartment. That's right. So now let's get to know your sort of like financial personality, um, which I feel like will probably overlap a lot. I, I think we'll see similarities between your artistry and how you sort of view finance. Are you a saver type or are you a spender? Of those two very broad categories, I would have to call myself a saver. All right. On the other hand, I think your next question is risk averse or risk risky. Do you like risk? Yeah. I feel like I... I'm willing to risk if I think there's going to be a, you know, payoff. So I wanted to ask you about this um, because I think a lot of theater people have to be risk takers. Totally. Like to just, just go because when, when you're like young, when you're like 10 years old, as soon as you start to think and know relatives or family members or people or friends, they all say like, never go into the arts. Like arts is this nice thing, but like never do it because you'll never take money. And so everybody Everybody knows that, and yet people still go into it. Was there a time in your career, like when you said you stopped assisting and you went straight to designing, to me that's a huge risk because like, say you have two choices. You can, uh, you can assist for $1,000 a week, let's say, and you know, okay, I'll work for seven days, I'll get $1,000, or I can design my own show, do my own thing for $100 this week, um, but that show might transfer or that show might win me a Tony Award, or, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but you've had to make a lot of those decisions, probably. I've made a few of those, yes. You mean turning down a sure thing to do something that might not be a sure thing, but like a, like a workshop of something that might go on to something else? Well, I mean, like, you moved to New York, and you know you had a job, so that was not taking a risk. That is true, and that plays a big role here. You know, like, who knows what would have happened if I didn't have that, I mean, I immediately had a, des a design outlet, you know, it's like I would have probably gone the electrician route, you know, I probably would have to make a living until I could get into design. I mean, I came to New York definitely to design. I didn't come to New York to be an electrician. But I have to say again, I, I feel super blessed in the sense that I never had risk to the point of rethinking, moving, getting out, trying something else, giving up. I just got lucky, and I, I never faced that horrible reality. Yeah. Well, you got lucky, and you're saying you got lucky, and you did get lucky, but you also took steps to, you know, make yourself available for that luck to happen. Yes, and I mean, I think the formula, honestly, is a little bit of talent, <laughs> good fortune, and the ability to take advantage of a situation. You know, to make something of an opportunity. That seems to me to be the things that have gotten me uh, however far I've gotten. Yeah. Growing up, did you have good financial advice? Like, were you taught about money? Like, this is how to balance a checkbook. This is what you should do immediately to start saving for your retirement. Like I said, we didn't have any money. But I do remember that my mother's checkbook was impeccable like balanced to the penny. And I was very impressed by that as a kid. We had no money and my dad died when I was seven and a half. So my mother was a 37 year old widow with three kids and she had to go to work. 
<laughs> and yeah. so she did. And she provided for the next eight, nine years before she remarried again. You know, she raised three kids and worked nine to five. And, you know, she was like, oh, I guess I got to go get a job. So she did. And so I know that rubbed off on all of us. You know, we were all super impressed. You know, she went in, she bit the bullet and she went out there and she provided. And it was very impressive to all of us. So that was a good lesson about responsibility and and the bills have to be paid. You know, you got to do something to live where you live and eat what you eat. And, you know, there's a pride in that and paying the bills and staying above water is important. So that kind of got imbued into all of us, I think. And like I said, my mother's checkbook was impeccable. But when I left school, I had zero. I had no money. I mean, somebody might have given me some graduation money. Maybe I had $2,000, perhaps, when I came to New York. And, uh, and then started working for $250 a week. That's, a, that's, a, like, that's an amazing background because I, I'm sort of like surprised you went into the arts with that. Because I, I, I figured that would make you like not want to take any risk at all. I know. I know. But that's, a, that's another kind of a longer story also. The, the man that my mother remarried basically yeah. became my father. Because uh, I didn't yeah. know my father, really. I mean, I remember him, sort of. But it was, I was too young right. before he was gone. So this guy sort of became my mentor, stepfather, whatever. And he was very big into the arts and travel and college and education. So I learned from him. I blossomed from him. He was the fun. He took me to my first really impressive theater gig, which was Stratford, Canada, um, when I was nine or something. I don't, I don't exactly remember, but I remember going to the Shakespeare Festival and the horns and the people in the Elizabethan clothes, and it was incredible. That's why I had a sort of arty bent, and uh, he supported it completely, and so did my mom. Nice. So now, on a daily basis, do you think about money? Do you worry about money? And I realize that has surely changed because of coronavirus. You know, this was not part of the plan, obviously. this, this uh, My next birthday will be 64. And, um, you know, I wasn't thinking I would do this forever and ever. I had a kind of stop date in my head and um, not stop, stop, stop. People, you know, a show or two or whatever. But, you know, I want something else also to happen in my life for the last however much I have. This, you know, like zero income currently, zero income uh, was not part of the formula. So... um, the formula is probably going to have to have a little rejiggering, I guess. But, I mean, am I, am I concerned about being out on the street or destitute? No. You know, frankly, not close. I mean, there's, I, I, in a way, I feel kind of bizarre. Like, Nina and I are here and, you know, we're eating well. And we're, she's teaching in my room right now. And yeah. I exercise and read. You know, we watch Netflix and eat dinner and it's kind of not um you know the aside from 7 p.m when we all stick our heads out the window and and cheer and clap it's um (laughs) i feel a little strange you know i don't i don't right now feel horror you know terrible terrible hardship um i got a i got a little cushion and um And, um, you know, I'm going to be okay, I think, until this is over. But, you know, that could be yeah, that could be a couple of years. Yeah, no joke. Um, oh, and, and also because you had a job when you moved here. So you've, you've never necessarily been worried about losing your apartment or, or – and I don't know if you, you had roommates or whatever. My first year I was here by myself. But in the second year, Diana finished school in Washington and came up yeah. to New York and lived with me. And then we got married two years later. So we were always a couple. There was always two incomes. No matter how bad it got, and it got kind of bad, but not crazy. Not not hunger, not destitute, not on the street. Yeah, okay. So where do you prioritize money if you have excess? I mean, I, I like I said, traveling is the, the thing that I was, you know, kind of hoping this period of my life would be all about. Um, and um, I'm kind of willing to spend money on trips and then eat beans and rice for the rest of the week if I have to. Um, you know, to travel well, yeah. comfortably, 
I don't mean like super duper first class deluxe or anything even close to that, but just there are there are things that make exotic travel just a little bit nicer. And I, yeah. you know, that's kind of what I, how I had envisioned my, the rest of my sixties. Um, yeah. so I'm willing to spend money like that. And, and of course going to the theater and concerts and, you know, performances of all different types, um, right. and food, yeah. food and good food and good wine. I don't have gadgets. I don't have, um, you know, any, any like, Oh, I have to have the latest, whatever. Um, I'm quite pared down actually. I'm, I'm, my, my existence is pretty simple. Um, okay. So I think we already know the answer to this, but, uh, like stereotypically <laughs> artists are viewed as not good with money. And so do you see yourself as not good with money or do you feel completely like I know exactly what I'm doing with my paychecks and I know exactly what I'm doing and I've known, I've known my whole career, like how to save for my retirement. Where are you on that spectrum? I feel like I have a certain um, rigor or a, or a kind of um, saving or, you know, trying to put something away has always been part of my existence. A lot of times that's been nothing or very little. I think it was in maybe 1983 that my ex-wife had a friend who was married to a financial advisor. And this guy was, you know, a real sort of proselytizer, uh, you know, save money, save money, save money. And I, and we did. We started then. We started in 1983. And I think I remember something like $25 a month for, you know, a couple of years. So that was kind of instituted a, a savings plan, that that was always important. Sometimes it was impossible to contribute, but it was important to do. I did it regularly, except when I was broke, which was frequently in the early-ish years, and then I would do it more proportionally when I was making more money. You know, when I had a show that was running, like, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to have two long-running international, many company type shows. And uh, obviously it's a lot easier to like set one of those companies aside as completely as like a savings thing, which is what I did. Uh, you know, so I had that kind of discipline. I'm not like a money wizard at all. I don't do it. I pay somebody to do it. Like I have a, right. I have a, I have an advisor. And yeah. so the, all the decisions basically are made by them. And, you know, they've okay. done well by me. I have to say, I, 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 I wouldn't want the responsibility of like looking at it and worrying about it every day. I mean, I, you know, I see the market tanking. I freak a little bit, but. Okay. And also, okay. So like if you, you know, look up research, like how do, how do I get good with money or what are smart things to do? What are, what's basic uh, financial advice? One of the things that always comes up is a budget. Throughout your life, have you had a budget? Definitely. Or, yeah. Starting in college, because I moved off campus went with Diana. We, we lived together in school, and um, we both had, you know, we chose to live off campus, but that meant we had to, like, handle our food. So we did, like, we did budgets back then. And, you know, they were, like, the serious budgets. Like, that was rice and beans days. And so uh, I still do that. Not with Hawkeyes, but I still do kind of keep a budget. In fact, I just did one recently, you know, now that we're all inside and all I'm really spending money on is food and comestibles, aside from, you know, yeah. the, the sort of regular things. Uh, I, I do yeah. believe in budgets. I think they're really smart. And I think included in the budget is a little small amount to pay yourself. Okay. So now, like, best financial decision of your life. <laughs> did you ever make a best financial decision or what was it? Well, I think there's a few. Uh, one was um, this thing that I just described, actually, this embarking very early in my life on an idea that saving is a good idea and things accrue and think long term and all of that. That is a, that is um, that bears fruit. And so that I consider to be um you know, foundational sort of decision about how I handled my life that I tried to tuck away some money, however I was doing it uh, for myself. Um, so that was the good thing. And I did, I also bought a piece, I bought a house once and, uh, and sold it now, but um, I did the very sort of typical buy at the very bottom and sold at the very top. So that, that was pretty good. 
decision. Well, that, that's uh, real, real estate is one of those things that always pops up like lower, lower down, but eventually you get to it. It's like, you know, if you, if you want to make money, real estate creeps in there somewhere. So, and I just assume that theater people though, often don't have anything to do with real estate. Like a lot of them live in big cities where they're always renting. So that's interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, that, that, you know, had a, again, that had to do with all of our own circumstances. Her family was from a certain area. We visited, we got to know the area a little bit. There was family connection, you know, it was a lot of things that sort of interwove and it wasn't, it wasn't about, um, I shouldn't say, okay, so maybe in a way I should retract that because it wasn't, okay. a de- it wasn't a decision made to make money. It was, a, it was a much more personal decision. You know, mm-hmm. it was a nice house away from the city and, um, close to family and recreation. It was lovely. Uh, and, bought low and sold high, like I said, but it wasn't a real estate decision. You know, it wasn't a, let's invest in a house and sell it, turn it over. And I mean, I kept the house for 20, 20 years, 20 plus years. So right. it was about right. enjoyment and, um, you know, making yeah. a space and all of that. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, a necessarily a financial thing, but it ended up being a good decision. Yeah. Okay. So now the opposite of that, what was the worst financial decision you've ever made? I think that would have to be uh, turning down a show that ended up running for a very long time. Do we get to know what show that was? I don't think we should know what that show is. <laughs> it's very painful. Yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a hard one. That sounds a little bit flip, but that, could have been a, that, that would have been a difference maker. I didn't do it. Other than that, I don't think I've made any uh, other, you know, just bad investments or outright errors or whatever. Yeah. I feel, I feel like that's almost cheating the answer because theater designers, like you, you just never know what show is going to. So, and sort of like you said, that was a bad decision, but it's also like a, a luck of the draw. Like, yes. You know, how, how are you going to know? There's just no way you could have known, but I guess that's the risk taker part of you because actually I'm getting a picture that you're actually not really a risk taker. That's what I'm picking up here, actually. <laughs> I think you're probably right. I mean, I'm. I think I'm, um, you know, a little bit past the midpoint of conservative, uh, risky towards the risky side, but just a little. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's. I was. I was expecting more uh, something hot and spicy, and you're really rather bland here with finances. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm. Yeah. Um, but also, I, I really like it because there's this just the stereotype that like artists are these crazy people, and uh, I would call you not crazy or you know anything like that okay so now some like more technical questions as a theater artist uh are all your designs like do you have an entity or you just sort of like you you buy me you buy my design and it's peter kazarowski and peter kazarowski gets the check or do you have a separate entity or corporation that you use to get your checks well i'm the sole proprietor i'm not an entity i think is i think like a corporation or something like that is that what you mean i'm certainly not that Every, absolutely everything I make is sent to my agency and they take their cut and then they send me a check. Absolutely everything, whether that's a real Broadway show or, and royalties or, you know, uh, 500 bucks from, you know, some downtown thing that I did for two days. Okay, now side, side tangent question from me, <laughs> which is agent. So I'm, I'm a designer. I don't have an agent. Um, I always say that, well, when, once I get a big enough show, then I'll get an agent. Or when when somebody says, oh, give me your agent contact information, then I'll go ask somebody to be my agent and connect them. Um, should I uh, go find an agent and say, represent me? Or should I just carry on as I'm doing? I would say that the the road to go there is when you get a show that you feel will, have, will be a negotiation that's just a little bit more complicated than you, I don't know how comfortable you are with it or how game you are to fight for it yourself. Maybe that's the time to, cause that would be attractive to an agent to negotiate a show that clearly was going to have some kind of life as opposed to just walking in cold to some agent's office and interviewing and say, I need representation. Always good to have a, a product to take and um, lure someone. I don't think it's a necessity. I didn't have one for quite a long time. In fact, I think it was, I had done maybe a Broadway show or two before I had one. Okay, here's, here's another question. We're getting off, off on a tangent here, but uh, people always tell me, oh, like designers, uh, their agents don't necessarily find them work. 
like you basically you find the work and then you have them negotiate the contract. Is that how it works for you or her, has your agent ever brought you a, a, a job? 90 plus percent, maybe even 95 percent of the work came because somebody wanted me, not because my agent pitched me for a show. That has happened a um, couple times, but, you know, a couple times, two, three. The rest has just been, you know, directors that I usually work with or institutions that I usually work with. And then they work it out with my guy, my agent. It's nice to not part, be at any part of the contract. In the, on the shows where you actually can do some negotiating, I mean, some shows, obviously, there's no negotiating. It's the Lord contract. It's done. They take their 10% regardless. But hopefully, you know, it pays off when, when there are really serious things to negotiate. And I have to say that plenty of times my agent has secured things in my contract that um, I'm grateful for that. I, I might, ugh, you know, it would have been hard for me to do maybe, or, I mean, they have perspective. They know other people's what they get and relative this and that it's, 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 it's valuable. So get one someday. <laughs> I will. <laughs> All right. Okay. So technical questions, when you are paid, are you mostly, or throughout your career, have you mostly been 1099 income or W-2 income? Yes, 1099. Again, probably I'd say 90%. The only people I can think of in New York that pay on a W-2 right now is the public theater. I think the Kennedy Center maybe pays that way too. And um, something to do with institutions like that, I think. They, they uh, I don't know, it's better for them, so they pay on the W-2. So, but, but for the most part, 1099 all the way. So yes, I do pay quarterly. Because I'm, I'm also 1099, but I don't, I've never paid quarterly. <laughs> <laughs> but I figure I just don't make enough money that nobody seems to care. Uh, let's not talk about my finances here. <laughs> I think once you start, they, they get suspicious if you don't continue. All right. So I've only ever worked on a Broadway show as an assistant. And I've, that, that has always been W-2 income for, for me on the Broadway shows. As a designer, is that different? Is it 1099 on a Broadway show? Yes, Okay, well, one day in my career, I will know that and see it for myself. <laughs> I guess, you know, some of them might ask if we want a W-2, if they want to do that, but I don't, I, I don't think so. It's uh, 1099. You know, the, like yeah. the, fee, the negotiated fee is what they pay. Yeah. It's up to me to deal with the other um, responsibilities. I mean, they okay. also do the, obviously, they do the pension and welfare thing, and they do the, you know, the the union money, the rest I'm responsible for. Taxes, I'm, that's my gig. Yeah. Okay, I, about taxes, do you file your own or do you have an accountant? Oh, no, I have an accountant and I've had the same accountant for 35 years maybe. I mean, she sort of passed it on to her assistant at this point. So, of course, you know, it's all being turned over to younger people like yourself. But, yes, yeah. I, um, yeah. I have the same accountant for 35 years. Did you ever file your taxes? Probably my first year I did, yeah. I just did a simple form. As I recall, okay. I never did any um, itemization by myself. When it came to getting to a place where I thought maybe itemization would help, I went to an accountant. All right, and we've sort of already touched on this. Do you invest? And if so, how do you? I do invest. Uh, as I said, though, you know, I kind of leave it to my financial advisors. So, like, I couldn't really tell you much what was in my portfolio, I'm afraid. I just don't, I don't know. It's, I'm sure it's equities and then mutual funds and some cash or something, you know, like that kind of balance. Like it's a very balanced, slightly more than middle of the road, risky. And of course, you know, that was, it was, you know, until a month ago, things were obviously very good. And then, so it's a whole new reckoning now, you know, it's, it's a new thing. We, we spoke the other day, actually, my financial people and I, there's our annuity, which I, you know, you get one of those, don't you at the union? Is that different from the pension? Different from the pension, and your employers pay into that. And so you probably made a little bit of money on that on uh, West Side. Boy, I'm going to have to learn a lot on this podcast <laughs> about my own finances. <laughs> All right, and, and your investing, is that do you count that as your retirement plan? Because, I mean, clearly you said you've had a retirement that you thought in your 60s you would travel. My future is a combination of things. It's Social Security, 
which I plan to take as soon as it's available to me, which I think is 66 in three months or something like that. Okay. I've decided that the best thing for me personally is to take it. I could wait five or 10 years or something and get more per month. Yeah. You know, you get it all at the end. You're 90 years old. Who wants it at the end? I want it now. Yeah. So that I have that. I have the union pension, the defined benefit uh, union pension, which I've been paying into now for 40 years. And I have investments. That's my future. You seem pretty, you know, for a theater artist, you seem pretty, uh, you're in good shape, it seems like. I would have to admit that I am. Yes. I mean, again, I feel a little, uh, I don't want to sound flip about it because, you know, right now there's a shitload of, ooh, pardon me, there's an awful lot of pain out there. And, um, you know, I feel a little bad that I don't feel that pain in a way. I mean, I, I'm not like, oh, I should be suffering like everyone. I you know I, I'm lucky. I'm, a, the, I'm the luckiest person I know. I mean, in kind of summation, I got a couple of opportunities. I made the most of them. I worked my butt off for my entire career, which was a little bit of a drag, frankly, on the, on the relationships and family. You know, I was a little yeah. bit of the deadbeat uncle. I have some of those regrets. The reason I brought it up now is just that it's like, I guess I was partly maybe somewhat subconsciously obsessed with the idea of making sure I secured my future. Okay. So, uh, okay. So there's something called the 80, 20 rule. And that sort of says that 20% of the work you do is going to give you 80% of your income or your, yeah. And then 80, 80% of the work you do is just going to bring you a little bit. Do you, can you see that in your life or career? Totally. In, in my instance, it means only a handful of shows that I've done in my life have actually made enough money for me that has made that would make a difference in my life. If you took away those half a dozen shows, I would be in a totally different place right now. I talked to Santo about this as well. He's like, you know, nine out of ten are are. I think it's more like. 90-20 or 90-10, I mean. Okay, so so the 80-20 is just the broad rule. You can get in, in, into it because you can analyze your 20, and in your 20, you get to 80-20 again. I mean, if you look at it in terms of like shows done over the years, or maybe even just Broadway shows, um, what's uh, that's 10%. Yeah, half a dozen shows, I've done 60. Half a dozen shows, yeah. 10%. 10% actually made a financial difference in my life. Okay. So then how has your personal network helped you throughout your career? Everything that happens in the business comes from my network. But my network is made up of mostly people I don't know, I guess you would say in that sense. Because, you know, there are people who have seen my work and think, oh, yeah, let's get him to light our show. You know what I mean? That's, that's the network I work in and that's the network that I try to plug into. But I don't think of them as my my personal network, if you know what I mean. Like some people thrive in that network really well. And, uh, you know, that's a plus. That's a real plus. That's, that's, that means work, I think. I, I have a network of sorts, but I feel mine is more sort of just about, you know, reputation and um, people seeing, you know, actually seeing something that I do as opposed to like knowing me. You know, when I would, you know, when I would interview for a gig, you know, I would, they would say, um, well, have you got any pictures or photos? And I would always say, no, I don't. Now I do, thanks to you, Ethan, on my website. <laughs> Good. I would say, you know, go see, what do you call it, which is running right now, or go see blah, 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 which is running right now. And that's how my network got bigger and got to a place that, where it was a nourishing network, meaning it meant continuing work. Okay, so now I'm moving to the wrap-up. What is your financial goal for the year, if you have one? Well, you know, obviously things are all turned upside down now. Yep. I guess I don't really have one. Okay. I don't want to get all sort of halo-ish about this, but we were just talking, Nina, when Nina's mom just got her $1,200 check. I think if I get one of those, which I probably won't for a long time, I think I'll give it to somebody who really needs it. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the financial goal I have right now is to maybe if I can, I don't know if I can, but, you know, help. Wow. That's very that's very noble of you. <laughs> I feel really lucky, and and um, I don't I don't really need his twelve hundred dollars, and I don't want to look at a check that says Donald Trump on it. I really don't. Right, 
Right. If I, if I thought it would go to the, you know, to the food bank or something like that, right, straight into the food bank's bank, that's what I would tell them to do with it. I mean, you know, I don't have any financial goals for myself. I'm not going to make any money. I, I just am, I'm going to have zero income from now until, you know, life gets going again, if it does. 2023, I'm thinking. 23? Yeah. That's me being optimistic. <laughs> well, 23, that's... That's too far. Okay, 2022. Or the fall, the fall of 21. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I Actually, that's that I think is like a, a hopeful with a little bit of realism in it. Um, because, I mean, the, the, the assumption is that they're going to close Broadway till September of 2020. They haven't done that yet. Plus, there might be like work in, in the regions, you know, like at, at um, I don't know, they might do a show at... Uh, Berkeley rep or, or, or I don't know, you know, in a place that's not such a hotbed, it might come back a little more slowly. And then that's good. You're positive thinking. Okay. So then, uh, do you have any personal goals for this year to help? We're going to go give blood. Um, I'm going to go, we're going to talk to that guy, uh, Jeff Whiting, you know, Jeff, he does that jar studios thing. He just opened on, what is it? 51st and Broadway. It's like new rehearsal studios. Incredible, beautiful studios. But he's he's set up like rooms of sewing machines where they're making masks and. Man, you're very good. Okay, okay. If you if money was not an issue in your life, what would you do? Well, does it like really like no nothing like I would dream big. Like, would you get into politics? Would you run for president? Oh God, no, no <laughs> way. Uh, again, I don't want to sound all like you know altruistic and goody two shoes about this. But if I if I, uh, money were no object, I would I would personally just like travel <laughs> wherever I wanted to go with Nina and then I'd try to let the rest of it do good you know like there's so much now that is so screwed up because of this president right that needs to sort of get set right again and reach you know like crawl back up the hill it's gonna need money so I I would I would if I had tons of money like if I were a guy I love Bill Gates I mean right fantastic he's amazing it's it's so wonderful when you see people with lots of money that do such amazingly good things for the world. Incredible. On a smaller scale, you know, like if I just, you know, for me, I think, again, it just, I just like, I love going to crazy new places. It'd be great to have good company when I went. And um, I just feel like I want to experience the world, you know, like we're so uh, like in a computer now. I want that kind of human experience again in my life. And it, and, um, Nicole and I love to travel, like, and you know, coronavirus has obviously stopped that. But we we also have intents to like go to the moon, probably not the Mars, not probably not Mars in our lifetime. <laughs> but we, you know, the moon is an experience, and I'd like to experience it just once. Okay, I, I get that. I, I personally, I don't need to go there. What, what happened when you go there? Do you get out and walk around, or is you just like go to take a drive by? Well, I don't know. I, I assume the first steps are like billionaires go, and then millionaires go. And then maybe by the time I'm 65, other people will be allowed to go. And hopefully my health will be okay that they'll still let a 65-year-old go up there. Um, so I don't know. There's a lot that has to happen up there. So I don't know. But yeah, you know, go up there, feel weightlessness. Or, okay. Um, what financial advice, if you could go back and talk to yourself right when you moved to New York and started your career, what financial advice would you give yourself? I think I probably, I mean, this is... 2020 hindsight obviously but i would have i would have tried harder convinced myself or a young person now i guess although it's so much more impossible now than it was when i first came here but i was going to say i would try to convince myself to take the risk to buy someplace because you know had i done that when i first got here it would have been a real scary thing at first but um owning real estate in new york city is you know that would have been I, I guess I, I, I wish I was a, bit, a little bit more um, in, intrepid about that kind of venture. But, I, you know, I just had too many things going on. I just like I, had too, I was too concentrated on like working and making a career that I couldn't really – I didn't have the passion to find something that I could maybe afford and redo. You know, it wasn't – I'm just – that's not in my DNA. I know, again, it's, it's easy to say, but pay yourself. However, a little. It's good for it's good for your head too. You know, it's not just it's not just like a little bit of money or whatever. It's it's a very good. Um, it's good for your brain once a month to write yourself a check. Nice.
Okay, so Nicole, my wife, who is not a theater person, randomly pulled me aside today and said, hey, I have some questions I want you to ask. And the first question is, how come so many theater people don't have any savings? Uh, because it's a terrible business proposition going into the theater. I mean, it's just, that is, it, like you know, it's almost like a, a trope at this point that, you know, nobody makes money in the theater. I mean, the, what's the phrase? You, you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. Once in a while, you might get lucky. And I think uh, that's why people keep doing it in the hopes that they're going to do that. But meanwhile, they have no savings or no... Yeah. Whatever, and if that uh, that event never happens in their life, they're still with no savings or no. It's basically just because uh, they work in theater. <laughs> I think that's the truth. <laughs> so, Nicole wants to know: Do you uh, COVID nineteen? How is that? Do you think going to affect theater moving forward? Yes, I do think it is. Gosh, it certainly is. And but you know, in ways you know, who knows yet? I mean, I think I, I read part of her question was, you know, is New York going to be the place to do it in? Like, you know, why here? If there's no theater anywhere, why here? Is it a good place to live here? Um, I think there will always be Broadway. I think Broadway will come back at some point. But, you know, whether or not New York is a good place to live right now, if you're a theater artist, not sure. I mean, and this might, you know, help other cities become more theater centers, you know, not just New York. But, you know, it's going to come back like... Maybe there'll be a sort of online presence to theater now. Oh God, I, I really don't know. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't been able to imagine what what form it comes back in initially, or how we go to the theater anymore. Yeah, I don't know either. Well, because the other thing is, as part of this COVID nineteen situation, no no live theater. A lot of theater companies have been broadcasting like recorded events. And I've been watching quite a lot, and it's nice, and I like it, but it's not the same as going there. Did you read Joel Gray's uh, editorial in the paper the other day? Uh, yeah. It's, he's, he, he really nailed it. I mean, there's, if you don't go sit in a room with a bunch of other people and go through the same experiences, it's not really – you don't get that on a, on, a, on a screen. Yeah. The meeting thing, I've had quite a few meetings on Zoom for shows, and it's kind of nice, I have to say. You know, it's – makes it easier to like go to the office in the back room and, and um, you know, completely participate in the meeting and see everybody and the preponderance of Zoom meetings and stuff like that. That, that probably will continue because I think that's useful. Yeah. What the theater looks like when people come back, whether they'll be separate, uh, I just don't know. I have no idea. And I, you know, I have to say, I don't, I don't love this. I don't relish this idea, but I, I think it's potential that I've done my last show. No, don't say that. <laughs> Have, no, we have to have hope. That's a little dire, but um, and I think Trevor, this thing that I was about to do when we stopped, I do think that will come back. I mean, I, they, they seem to be dedicated to making that show happen. But you know, the landscape is going to be so different when when it comes back. I don't, I don't know. Like managers will probably have made moves to get out. Assistants, programmers, electricians, actors. You know, like the who's who is going to be so different and because i mean you're you're established and sort of like you know you you said oh you know maybe you'll do another show and you're at peace with that um but i've been in new york for seven years eight years and i'm i'm hoping to just sort of weather this you know i'm like buying time you know day by day seeing how it goes but if i had just moved here you know six months ago would i turn around and leave i i'm afraid i might so I feel like we're there's a year or two of artists and theater people that we're going to lose. You know, what are kids who are thinking about going to school for the theater right now doing? What are they going to do? You know, like if I were about to enroll in the fall uh, semester at Yale MFA school, I would seriously rethink that right now. Particularly if it meant I, I was paying, you know, 60 grand or whatever it is a year to go and borrow money to do it and... All of that. Because I think it's one thing. Actors are an easy thing to think about. But as a theater designer, learning lighting, well, that's a whole different skill set from learning television lighting or learning film lighting, which those may come back sooner and may provide a better career. So, But I, but I don't know. It's, it's like such a different thing. So do you want to spend four years learning theater design? Okay. So Nicole's other question is uh, union, the designer union. Uh, pros or cons of joining the union? Well, I'm very pro. Um, 
I can't think of a con. I guess, you know, you have, if you're not working very much and you have to pay the dues uh, every year, um, I guess that's a hardship. I guess I, I can see that being a reason to, to not be in if, you, uh, if that money is hard to let go of or impossible to let go of, given that you don't really have any union work. I mean, you know, knock wood, uh, markets all kaflui right now and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I have, a, I have a defined benefit pension from our union. I always used to say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just waiting for the day when it goes the way of like a General Motors pension or whatever, like, you know, expecting yeah. it almost. And then I would always say to myself, that's never going to happen because Broadway is never going to go anywhere. I mean, people are always going to go to Broadway. And the local one, which is our, our parent union, is, you know, that's a very hell. We're all, frankly, quite healthy unions because Broadway bo- was booming. I also feel like as a designer, the design union is a little different than actors equity i know even less about the directors union but like actors equity you have to get permission to not do an equity show whereas the designer union you potentially can do non-union work and it's not gonna hurt you or they're not gonna come after you there really are very few cons to joining like you said the only one being you can't pay the dues but even the dues are not a crazy amount they're not i mean if you you want to be in it you want to be in it because if you know an opportunity comes up where you know you you impress somebody and they say, hey, you know, I need another assistant on blah, blah, blah. You're good to go. So now, final two questions, maybe philosophical here, but what separates those that have a successful theater career um, versus those that uh, stop or maybe never even try to do it? Um, I think it's a little bit of sort of what we've talked about before or, or my, you know, my kind of pseudo formula of a little bit of good fortune, and then the togetherness, as it were, the, the, the fact that you are, you're a together enough person, professional, to take advantage of those situations that you're, that you're given. I, I'm sure there's tons of people who you know, should have had a fantastic career, but you know, never got an opportunity, and they, they bailed before an opportunity came up that they could take advantage of. I feel it's a lot of that, you know, because I feel like uh, I don't feel like personally, like I look at this personally, like I don't feel like I have some unbelievable gift. I have skill. You know, I can do it. I know how to do it and and I know how to do it well and quickly and without a lot of muss and fuss. I don't I don't think this business actually is set up in order to like experience everybody's talent level. You know, you don't particularly as a lighting designer. You don't show that you have ability to anybody else unless you have an opportunity to do it. It's about being presented an opportunity. It's about being able to make oneself available to those opportunities and then just doing a rip roar and bang up job when they get the opportunity and, and being a nice person, being, being a, an affable, respectful, nice person, you know, that is pleasant to work with. And um, I mean, I know pl- I've, I'm sure plenty of people would say that I've, there have been times when I've been not all that pleasant to work with. But in general, I'm saying I respect people. I don't try to, you know, I don't waste people's time. I don't feel like my time is more valuable than anybody else's. And that's appealing, I think, to people. I think, I think that's a part of working in the theater. You have to play along. Yeah, you can be a little rough around the edges. You can have your bad days. You know, and I guess if, if you have enough money to do whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. But pretty much everybody in theater you just have to play along like it's just a general rule like you just won't you won't last longer you won't enjoy it the best experiences are when when people give when all colleagues give other colleagues room to be who they are what they do give them time be respectful of their time you know like and you have to be able to live like that you have to be able to you know get along in an environment like that to ask have people ask to do it again So I'm going to summarize. If you want to have a successful career in theater, you have to put yourself in position to have access to continue that theater career, and you have to play well with others. Yes, I think I think summarized rather than say um, play well with others, it's just be respectful of colleagues. Okay. So final question: Where can people find out more about you? Well, there's the Google. I don't know. I mean, I have a website, Uh They can call me or email me. 
I had an email address. Somebody wants to know something about me, they can email. Wow, nice. You don't have a you don't have a Twitter and you're not tweeting every day. I Instagram, but I don't have anything else. Just Instagram. I think it's Kazarowski Peter because I couldn't go the other way. That was our interview with Peter Kazarowski. I can't thank him enough for his time and patience. My takeaways were: start saving early, pay yourself first, buy a house, and be respectful and kind in order to keep getting work. Peter kept saying he was lucky, and he was. But he knew he wanted to be a designer, so he moved to New York and pursued it. Everyone working in the theater knows it's a grinding job. Peter had to work long hours for less pay than he could have made elsewhere. And he made sacrifices in his personal life. But he has had an amazing career, and he never really fit the bill for being a starving artist. Well, that's it for today. Join us next week for our hilarious interview with Tony Award-winning actor Chuck Cooper. That man loves to laugh. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a review so others can find us. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Ethan and Nicole Spimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chang Liu.